0: to the book of Ephesians chapter 5, Ephesians chapter 5, beginning at verse 25, and when you arrive, please say amen. I'm reading from the New American Standard Translation, if you can please follow on your copy of God's word, Ephesians chapter 5, beginning at verse 25, word of God reads as follows. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she, should, she would be holy and blameless. Thus conclusion of God's word, let us pray. Father, we come this morning to worship you. We realize in John chapter 4, verses 22 and 23, that God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. And that our, your death at Calvary's cross, was the means by which we can, by the spirit of God, worship you today, to worship you in song, and to worship you through your word. Lord, we pray that you would open up our eyes, that we might behold wonderful things from thy law, these and other blessings we ask in the precious name of Jesus, and all God's people said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. I'd like to label the message for you this morning. The true church is loved by Christ. The true church is loved by Christ. On a television talk show many years ago, the guest was an actor, a well-known actor, who was known to play romantic roles on film. As he was on the show, it was predictable at one point of the interview that he would be asked the question, what is a great lover? His response shocked the host and the audience. His response went something like this. A great lover is someone who can be committed to one woman and to satisfy her, all her life long, and that he be satisfied by her all his life long. A great lover is not someone who goes from woman to woman to woman. Any dog can do that. In the passage that is before us this morning, the Apostle Paul expounds upon the mystery upon which we understand one man being committed to one woman and satisfying her all her life long was modeled. In this section, the Apostle Paul lets us know that the creation of marriage was not created as an example for which Christ is to love the church, but that Christ's love for the church is the pattern upon which the institution of marriage was created in the first place. And what I want to share with you just for a moment this morning, we've been going through a series of, at our church, on what is the church. And I would just, just for a moment, just bear with me, I want to just give you an overview of what we've been talking about this summer. Because you cannot define the church apart from her relationship to Jesus Christ. In Matthew's Gospel, chapter 16, verses 13 to 19, we talked about that the true church submits to the lordship of Jesus Christ. And in that text... The question was asked, who do people say that I am? And then Jesus asked the disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And therefore, Jesus says, based on that, Peter, I will build my church on the reality that Christ is Lord over all. Yeah. Therefore, the true church is known by their submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Let me just put it simply to submit to the Bible is to submit to Christ. The second sermon we've gone through at our church at Main Street was that the true church is a Christ-identifying church. That's in Matthew 16, verses 21 to 27. And that simply means that Jesus told the disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, he must deny himself, pick up his cross, and always follow me. The true church is a Christ-identifying church. You deny yourself. You don't promote yourself when you come to Jesus. You deny yourself when you come to Christ and you pick up your cross. That means I'm willing to suffer for the sake of the gospel and follow him wherever he wants me to go. third message in that study was out of this very letter, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. And in that sermon, we entitled it, that the true church is a Christ-like church. And that simply means that the church ought to reflect the character of Christ to a certain extent. Uh, We ought to look like Jesus on how we treat one another. And in chapter 4, verse 1, Paul says, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, I, I urge you, I beseech you, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. That when God calls you. That means when you heard the gospel. God drew you to himself. And therefore there's a walk. There's a new walk. There's a new lifestyle. We ought to live. And in verses 2 and 3. Defines how that walk ought to look. With all humility. Gentleness. With patience. Showing forbearance towards one another. In love. That the Christian walk is a corporate walk, not an individual walk. You might be able to grow in knowledge outside the church, but you can't be like Jesus unless you're in the church. A worthy walk is a a Christ-like walk, how we treat one another. And so Paul says, if you want to walk this worthy walk, if you want to walk in a way that honors Christ, You can't do that independent of the church. We're to walk with all humility, gentleness, showing forbearance towards one another in love. Now, what keeps us from walking in humility towards one another and being gentle and patient towards one another and showing forbearance towards one another in the church to to demonstrate these Christ-like attitudes to one another— the temptation we face and obeying that command is that we typically tie our identity, who we are, to people's perception of us. Oftentimes, are you with me, church? Oftentimes we have a man-centered, self-centered view of ourselves. Or, In other words, we, we want ourselves to be defined by a way that people ought to perceive us that makes sense? For example, in the Bible, the Bible commands us to walk in humility. The Bible commands us that. I'm going to walk this worthy walk by considering others more important than myself. Yet, yet if I interpret, and I think that you're interpreting my meekness as weakness, I might stop being humble towards you and start treating you mean. You get me this morning? If, as the Bible commands me to walk in humility, Patience. If I perceive that you're viewing my patience as being passive, I'll be frustrated with you. If, as the Bible commands me to walk in gentleness towards you, if I perceive you're interpreting my gentleness as a license to take advantage of me, then I won't be kind to you anymore. And what we have done at that point, we have viewed our responsibility to demonstrate Christ-like virtues of of humility and gentleness and love, we'll begin to say, well, that's not really a worthy walk. Even though God says, by his estimation, that's a worthy walk. We'll say that's a shameful walk. We've taken, at that point, a man-centered, self-centered view of the virtues that we ought to demonstrate towards one another. And you know what we've done when we got to that point? You know what we've done? We have exchanged the riches of our identity in Christ in order to function as if destitute of spiritual power to live above pettiness. Y'all falling asleep on me this morning? Let me help you out. The first three chapters of Ephesians, it speaks of our riches in Christ that before the foundation of the world, the father chose us in Jesus. Jesus came and shed his blood for the forgiveness of all my trespasses. Then he sent his Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit indwells me and I'm sealed with the Holy Ghost as a pledge or an engagement ring of my inheritance in heaven. Chapter one of Ephesians says that that now I have spiritual resurrected power to live a holy life. Despite the fact in chapter two, I was once dead. And trespassing sins. I was walking according to the course of his world. I was under the domination of the devil. But God. But God. Being rich in mercy. Made me one with Jesus. Now I'm seated with Jesus in the heavenlies. Now I've been reconciled to God through the blood of Jesus. I'm a part of God's household. I'm a child of God. I have access to God through Jesus Christ. I can go to God anytime I want and talk to him. And Paul says in chapter 3, verses 14 to 21, he says, I pray that the church will experience the riches of these spiritual blessings. That these spiritual blessings express how much Jesus Christ loves us that surpasses knowledge to the point that we'll be filled up with all the fullness Of God. That simply means this. That when I focus of my riches of union with Jesus. I'll be so filled with the love of Christ. I'll be so focused on the promises of Christ. I'll have the strength of Christ. And I'll have the knowledge that Christ rules over every aspect of my life. That listen, I don't care nor am I concerned what anybody thinks about me. That doesn't hinder me from loving them nonetheless. Does that make sense? When people insult me or offend me, that does not remove any blessings from me. I'm still a child of God. All my sins are forgiven. All his promises are yes and amen. And all things work together for the good. Those who love God are called according to his purpose. So no matter what somebody might do to me, because I'm in Christ, I'm not relying upon them to define me. They don't define me. I don't rely upon fickle, imperfect people to define who I am. My identity is in Christ. So I can be humble, I can be gentle, I can be patient, and I can show forbearance towards you in love despite how you treat me because they don't remove my riches of who I am in Christ. Second point of that message that I did last week, a couple of weeks ago, was that the true church can sense to Christ reveal articles of faith? That's verses four to verse six of Ephesians four. And that simply means that we believe that God is triune in nature. We believe in the Christian faith, that it takes faith alone in Jesus Christ in order to be born again. And then towards the end of Ephesians four, verse 11 and 16, the true church is committed to Christ centered aspirations. The true church is not about entertainment. We're not here to be entertained. We're here to worship. Jesus and become more and more like Him. That ought to be the focus of the church. That you ought to be different each week you come to church. You ought not leave here the same. You ought to be becoming more and more like Christ in your walk before Him. Now we come to the text before us this morning in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 to 27. And in this text, we'll discover three features of Christ's love for the church. The first feature of Christ's love for the church is that his love for the church is covenantal. His love for us. Notice with me in verse 25, the Apostle Paul writes, husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church. Husbands, love your wives. When I find it, Fascinating about this command is that this is the only command in the Bible given to husbands. You go anywhere in the Old Testament, you will not find an explicit command for husbands to love their wives. That don't, doesn't mean that it wasn't expected. It just wasn't made clear in a sense of explicit command. And that's what makes this text so unique. This passage is the premier passage on what a Christian marriage ought to look like. In the Greco-Roman society, women had responsibilities of submission to their husbands, but, but husbands really, there wasn't really anything expected out of husbands concerning how they were to treat their wives. In fact, in the common Greek language of that day, there were three words that would express what we would say, one word of love in our English language. You had eros, which was referred to as sexual passion, phileo, which is a family love, I mean a friendship love, and storge, which is a family love. But when the apostle Paul commands husbands love their wives, he doesn't use any of those words. He used a word that wasn't even used in the common Greek language. We might say agape or agapao love. Uh, this was a love that was expressed towards towards. Uh, a man is expressed towards his wife. This was the type of love that Christ expressed towards his church. That, that, That the agape love of the Bible is not so much defined in the New Testament as much as it's described. Husbands, when the Bible commands us to love our wives, the first thing ought to come to our mind is the picture of Christ's love for the church. In other words, agape love is a gospel-centered love. In John chapter 13, verse 34, Jesus says, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 2, the Apostle Paul says, walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 16, he says, we know love by this. That he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for one another. First John chapter four, verses ten and eleven. In this is love, not that we love God, but that God loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. If God so loved us in this way, we ought to love one another. You get the picture. That there is no other way that we would express love towards one another but by the example of the cross. In our text this morning, love is a command given here. It's a present tense command. We are to continually, daily, and habitually love, not just by words, husbands, but by self-denying acts of love towards our wives. That we're given a command that is not about us. It's all about laying down our lives for our wives. Just the same way that Christ willingly laid down his life for us. This is a gracious act of love. Uh, this means that when you love somebody, it doesn't mean they, actually, they, 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 they deserve it. doesn't mean they earned it. doesn't mean they merited it. But you love them anyway because it's the same way Christ loved you, even though you know you don't deserve it. I pray that our churches would demonstrate this gospel-centered type of love, not only in our marriages, but how we fellowship amongst one another. Someone put it this way, that the gift that a husband can give to his wife is to deny himself. Now, this is different from the world. Uh, The the world's sort of love is all based on self-centered attractions. I only like you as long as I see something that I I want from you. And and, and if I I see something in you that I want, then I'll go after you. But... But it's not a love that means I'm seeking what's good for you. It's a love that I'm I'm focusing on me. And when I get what I want from you, I don't need you anymore. This is not the type of love that we are to demonstrate towards one another. That when a husband looks at his wife, he is not to look at her as a self-centered, what can I get from this relationship? He's to look at her even when she may not be attractive to you, you look at her the same way Christ looks at you when you weren't attractive when he saved you. You're to put on the lens not of self, not of lust, but of Christ. It's the point of what the Apostle Paul is saying here. It's a gospel centered love. You may have been married for many years. Sometimes you get into marriage, you're married for a long time, you learn how to put up with one another. But if your marriage, I don't care if you've been married 30, 40, 50 years, if you have not demonstrated this type of love as commanded husbands in the Bible, you've been in sin for 30, 40, 50 years. Why? Because your sentimental, arbitrary love is a misrepresentation of Christ's love for you. Have I got a witness? And just since I'm on the subject, Godly single ladies, this is the type of man Christ wants you to be with. No man can love you unless he is saved and committed to living a life of obedience to Christ. Let me put it this way. His heart, he won't treat you right unless his heart is right with God. You can't expect a man to treat you right unless his heart is right with God. Now we move from the command to love to the example of that love given in the same verse, the second part of verse 25, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, just as even as you see the similarity, we're to demonstrate the love towards one another, just as Christ also loved The church. Now, the word love there, the tense of the word, deals with an act that was done in the past, and yet it was an accomplished or fulfilled act of love. To put it simply, to be loved fully is to be loved perfectly. That the one act of redemption, when Christ went to the cross for our sins, that one act will produce ripple effects. From that point of Calvary's cross till now and forever. That's the point of where Paul is saying that when Christ went to the cross 2,000 years ago, the ripple effects of that love will continue till now and for all eternity. This is a love that is covenantal in nature. That when Christ enters into a relationship with us through the cross, that means that you are his and you are his forever. And this is the point of Ephesians chapter 1 verses 3 all the way to verse 14. The apostle Paul is saying in verses four that that the spiritual blessings that we have is that the father chose us in the son before the foundation of the world. That means that the father, and we read this earlier in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 20, that the blood of the eternal covenant, that the father made a covenant with the son before the foundation of the world. And and, and the father says, I want want to choose for you some guilty sinners to save. And then he opened up a book and wrote their names down in the Lamb's book of life. And the son says, I'm going to go, I'm going to get that bride. I'm going to pay the price for her sins at the cross. Paid that price, rose from the grave, went to heaven, sat down at the right hand of the father, and now his church is being built. His bride is being built. And when his bride is complete, he's going to come back and get her, that she might be with him forever. His love is covenantal in nature. Now, there are different expressions. There are two basic expressions of God's love towards mankind. You have the agape love that God demonstrates towards unrepentant sinners. That simply means that God just just gives common grace to folk, wakes them up, gives them a job gives him good family life, good health. And this love is evangelistic in nature that God doesn't just bless you and give you days to live so you can waste it any way you want to. God's forbearance and his kindness, as it says in Romans chapter 2, verse 4, ought to lead me to repentance. That God's been blessing me and yet I treat him this way ought to bring me to shame. You know before salvation, you didn't give God no praise. You didn't thank God for that food he fed you with every day. God wakes up the atheists, the Jehovah Witnesses, the Mormons, the Muslims, and he blesses them every day. Not for them to waste it. They might see how shameful they are to rebel against such a kind God. These are temporal blessings. They vary in degrees. But then you have the expression of the love of God that's eternal in nature. Internal in intent, when God chose us as guilty sinners to be united to his son in salvation. Jeremiah chapter 31, verse three says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I've drawn you with loving kindness and compassion. And in that context, it's dealing with the new covenant that God says, I'm going to love you. And my love for you is not going to be short. It's going to love you forever, forever and ever and ever. But notice here's the verse twenty, twenty-five, 25. He, he loved the church and, and the church there is feminine in nature. It's to represent that, that we represent the bride of Christ. And how was this agapal love expressed towards the church? He gave himself up for her to give or that, that verb gave. That means he gave himself over to the power of someone. That means when Christ went to the cross, he gave himself over to the power of the father. Luke chapter 22, verses 39 to 46, Jesus was in the garden of Gethsemane. And as he was in the garden of Gethsemane, he was praying. And he said, Father, if it be thy will, remove this cup from me. Yet not my will, but thy will be done. The cup refers to the wrath of God. God was angry with you before you were saved. He didn't like that sin you were living in. We were sinning against God. And Christ says, instead of you pouring out your anger on them, pour it out on me. That's why on the cross, that's why on the cross, the only prayer that Jesus prayed, when he perceived the first person in the tree, he didn't call him father on the cross when he bore our sins. He says, my God, my God, why art thou forsaken me? He was taking responsibility for your sins. Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ was held legally responsible for every sin you committed, though he committed not one. And the father poured out all his anger. On a lifetime of all your sin. And when he, when he atoned for our sins, Jesus said, it's finished. That's grace. He gave himself. That's how much he loved us. That he gave himself up for us. Jesus Christ drank the cup of damnation. There's not a drop left. See, mankind and Adam, we were in a relationship with God and Adam. But once we sinned in Adam, God did a divine divorce. Spiritual death, no relationship. Physical death, we're getting old, dying. And eternal death, hell. That same God that did that, in his sovereign love, he came in the person of Jesus Christ, went to the cross, atoned for every sin you and I ever committed, and now because we're in Christ by faith, we're forgiven of all sin, past Present and future. The forgiveness of God simply means this by grace. I don't owe God hell for my sin. Oh, that's good news. You don't owe God church attendance because of, no, 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 that's not what you owe to God. The wages of sin is death. That's what you owe God. And Christ came and atoned for all your sin. And now you don't owe God suffering in hell for your sin. See, that's why we ought not complain. We're, you're always doing better than what you deserve. Anything short of hell is a blessing. And you think about that. That's love, church. C.H. Spurgeon was correct. Child of God, you cost Christ too much for him to forget about you. He went to the cross for you. So the first feature of his love for the church. It is covenantal, his love for us. The second feature of Christ's love for the church is consecrating our love for him. Verse 26, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word. Now, in some of your Bible translations in verses 26 and 27, it might begin with the demonstrative pronoun that. Uh, Grammarians refer to this as the purpose clause. In other words, verse 25 Pretty much him dying for us, him giving himself up for us, gives us two purposes why he did that. There's two reasons why Christ gave himself up for us in verse 25. And it's explained to us in verses 26 and 27. The first purpose for why Christ gave himself up for us is that he might sanctify her. Sanctify means that he might set her apart. That he might move her from the profane and consecrate her to himself. Sanctification simply means that God may make us holy. Jesus made provision through the cross to sanctify his church. Christ's death, the purpose of his death, was not just to justify you, but to also sanctify you. The purpose of Christ going to the cross was not just to change your status from guilty to righteous, but to change your nature from sinful to holy. That was the purpose. So that when we tell people, come as as you are, come as you are, we have to explain that when Jesus saves you, he won't keep you as you are. When when Jesus Christ accepts us, he accepts us despite us, that he might change us. Have I got a witness? That is the purpose for his death. Now the question is, why is sanctification essential in the work of redemption? Why was it important for Jesus Christ to save us that he might sanctify us? The intent of sanctification is for fidelity purposes. The intent of sanctification is for fidelity purposes. Don't forget, before salvation, you were hooked up with somebody else. First Thessalonians chapter one, verse nine says that how we turn from God to God from idols to serve the living and the true God. First Corinthians chapter 12, verse two, the apostle Paul tells the church, you know, that when you were pagans, you were led astray to the dumb idols. However, you were led all of God's elect before salvation. We were idolaters. Abraham was an idolater. Joshua chapter 24, verse two. The nation of Israel, before they were redeemed out of Egyptian bondage, they were idolaters. And each and every one of us, before God saved us, we were idol worshipers. Whether it be you worship yourself, you worship possessions, you worship other folk, or you worship your career or your education. All of us were in an in relationship with somebody else before Christ saved us. That's why it says in Romans chapter 7, verses 1 and 13 That we were under the law of condemnation. In other words, the law condemned us for being in an immoral, unlawful relationship with somebody else besides God. And and the law convicted us and exposed our sins. Proving to us that our lifestyle was not pleasing unto God. God did not create you to live any way you want to. And therefore the law kept exposing. Ain't nothing wrong with the law. But the law kept exposing our sin. And the law can change us. Law can give us grace or mercy. All it can do is that you ought to go to hell for cheating on the God that created you. And yet Romans chapter eight verse four says that Jesus Christ died on the cross and fulfilled the requirements of the law. That now what's the requirement of the law? Holiness. That now I'm in Christ, I've been set apart, and there is a progression. Now in my life, practically, therefore, the first purpose in Christ dying for our sins was that his bride might be set apart from her dependence on the idols of position. Possessions, prestige and sinful pleasures and find our joy only in Christ. But the flesh. That is still in us. tempts us to covet, to still covet the idols of this world. And therein lies the command in Scripture. And 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 14, it says, Therefore flee idolatry. In other words, the therefore there takes us back to verse 13, no temptation. The nature of every temptation is to tempt you to worship self. And the last verse of 1 John chapter 5, verse 21, the last verse says, Little children, guard yourselves from idols. Let me ask you this question. Do you guard yourself from idols? The number one reason why our Christian walk is weak is because we got some idols in our hearts. The reason why our Bibles, we read in our Bibles infrequently. The reason why our prayer life is shallow. The reason why we're indifferent to holiness is because we got some idols up in our hearts. John Calvin said it right. Our hearts are like an idol factory. Always worshiping something other than Christ. This was the reason why Israel failed in their obedience to Christ, because they did not to God. They did not guard themselves from idols, and they got caught up in spiritual adultery. When you worship idols, you're cheating on God. And God had to raise up a man named Hosea and said, Hosea, I want you to marry a woman who ain't going to be faithful to you. Her name is Gomer. And he married Gomer as soon as he put the ring on her finger. She was out cheating on her man. And then in chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, the Lord says, "Hosea, I want you to go and I want you to get Gomer. She's been cheating on you. She ain't been treating you right, but I want you to pay for her. And I want you to tell her you are mine. You ain't going to no other man. And that was to be a picture of the gospel that God would bring. Because he tells Israel in chapter 2, verses 4 through 9, he says, Israel, I got a problem with you cheating on me. And, and you don't even know how bad this cheating is. You worship the god Baal because you believe that he's the god of agriculture and, that, and you've been praising him and worshiping him for the water and the wool and the flak and the oil and the wine. And, and, and you're so going off. Uh, on, on this misguided worship, you don't even realize you giving him all the praise and I got to hedge you up so you can stop going after him because you don't realize that water, that wheat, that wool, that flack, that wine, that's mine. While you were worshiping, best, I was the one providing for your needs. In fact, that's my gold and my silver that you used to make this God don't even exist. And we can be no longer, we're no different than Israel. Worshipping the idols of career, education, beauty, and possessions, not not realizing it's the Lord who's the source of all your needs and wants. Don't forget, it's God that's blessing you. God didn't bless you, you didn't get that career on your own. It was God that gave that person the desire to hire you in the first place. That degree you won willing to sacrifice for your relationship with Christ, it's God that gave you the sense to comprehend the stuff you're learning. That car you're worshiping, it was Christ that gave you the money or at least get the good credit to get that car. And here we are. Like spiritual harlots flirting with every idol that comes our way. And therefore, sanctification is for fidelity purposes. Christ saved you that you might be all of his and mind, body, and soul. I'm to think like Christ. My physical body belongs to Christ. First Corinthians 615. Your body don't belong to you. And in verse 17, Our spirits, we're one with the Lord. That means what I think, what goes through my mind, whether it be the sins of imagination, scheming or remembering. That's the mind uh, that belongs to Jesus. That don't belong to you. When Christ saved you, he saved all of you. And there is no such thing as an open marriage with Jesus. You just go around doing whatever you want Monday through Saturday. Saturday. And then come home on Sunday morning and say, "I love you, Jesus." No, no, no. He don't have no open marriages. Jesus Christ has only one bride, and that is His church. John chapter seventeen, verse nine, in His high priestly prayer, the Lord says this. He says this. I don't ask on behalf of the world, but I ask on behalf of those you gave me. In other words, Jesus, I don't, I don't. I'm not praying for the world because they don't belong to me. Those you gave me belong to me. Why would you put your hope in stuff that don't even exist? Calvin was correct that we substitute monstrous fictions for the true and living God. Anything that you worship in that money, that house, your beauty is fiction. Ain't real. And C.S. Lewis was correct. Don't Don't put your happiness in something you might lose. Christ has saved us that we might be his. James 4.4 says, you adulteresses, don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? And so the Lord has to hem us up every so often. We drift. Just like the Lord did with Hosea, I and mean with Gomer. Gomer going off and, and, and Israel's going off and God has to bring trials in their life. Oftentimes the Lord has to bring some trials in our life. Now, the trials are, 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 are the means of sanctification, but the instrument of sanctification is his word. Notice verse 26. That he might sanctify us by the washing of the water with the word. That he might cleanse us. That word in the original is where we get our English word catharsis or categorize. I think that's the way you say it. It means to purify, to cleanse. Sanctification is a painful process. The Lord might remove some stuff out of your life, like he did Job. God will do whatever it takes to make you holy, because you belong to him. I don't right write about that. Progressive sanctification means that there are degrees of love expressed towards Christ that he initiates by means of the washing of the water with the word. This is according to our Lord's prayer, sanctify them in thy truth thy word is truth. There is an old Jewish wedding custom that when the ring was given by the bridegroom to the bride, he would say, behold, thou art sanctified to me. Sanctification is for fidelity purposes. The third and last feature of Christ's love for the church is its aim at consummation. Experiencing Christ's perfect love, and the church expressing perfect love. Notice verse 27 as I close. That he might present Him to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. That he might present to himself, that he might show her off. The church in all her glory, that means free from sin, having no spot, no stain, no moral fault, no urges towards idolatry, no pride, no arrogance, no temptation or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless, unblameable. This was according to what we see in the first chapter of this letter, chapter chapter one, verse four, that Christ, we were chosen in Christ, that we might stand before him one day holy and blameless. Can you imagine? One day you will stand before Jesus and there will be no sin, And your mind, your will, your most, you will never have to confess sin anymore. You won't be tempted to do evil things anymore. You will be perfect. You will be beautiful before God. At the consummation. In other words, your salvation is not done yet. You fall short today. That's okay. Jesus is not done with you yet. He will make you perfect one day. We confess our sins. We forget about the past. We keep pressing towards the mark of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus, knowing that one day we will stand before the lamb and glorious and worthy is the lamb that was slain. Oh, what a glorious day that will be. In fact, in Jewish custom of marriage, there were four phases. You had the betrothal, the betrothal. Where, where, where the bridegroom, the potential bridegroom would go to the bride and he would make a, an engagement to her, he would propose to her, and, and the engagement was much more binding during that time, and there was an agreement and a covenant established, and and, and the husband was legally committed to his wife during that stage. The second phase was the interval, where, where, where at this point the bridegroom would pay the dowry to the husband, I mean to the father, the bride price, to take care of his daughter. Then the third phase was the preparation and procession. While he's away, the bride is preparing herself, making herself beautiful. And then she would hear the coming procession. The husband with his friends making merry to the house to get his bride. And then after that would be the wedding feast. May I say that Christ's love for the church is the same way. There was a betrothal period that before the foundation of the world, Father said, I'm going to give you a bride. She ain't going to be pretty when you get her, though. She's going to be full of sin. And the the son says, I take that bride. I'll make her mine. And that's why in John chapter 6, verse 35 on, Jesus says, only what the Father has given me, all that the Father gives me, will come to me. Jesus ain't going to turn away a love gift. And he went to the cross and paid her sin. All of her sin, he paid the bride price in that interval. He paid the bride price. He died, he rose, he went to heaven, and now the church is preparing for the future procession. And on that day, there will be a trumpet sound, and the crowds will be rolled back like a scroll, and Jesus Christ will come and get his bride that she might be with him forever at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Jesus Christ is the greatest lover. And we will be satisfied with his love for all eternity. And he'll be satisfied with us for all eternity. Amen. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for loving sinners like us. Lord, you knew, you knew, you knew when you gave us the Christ before the.